All right, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we are uh, today in uh, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you could probably you probably have an app on your phone. Uh, and, and if not, there's a paper Bible uh, in one of the seats in front of you. And uh, you're welcome to keep that if you don't have a paper Bible. I always like having a, a paper Bible. Um, but on page 531, uh, you'll find our, uh, our text, um, which is Acts chapter 4. And we're going to work uh, through uh, verses 1 through 22 this morning. If you're new to church, this is the time uh, of our worship service where uh, you'll hear a teaching from the Bible, and it's, uh, it's we call it expository um, preaching, where um, it's my goal just to go verse by verse through the text that uh, is appropriate for today, and, and just to unpack it a little bit and to teach uh, some of the key points about it, and, uh, and, and it usually just takes about an hour and a half to do that. I'm just kidding. It's not that long. Um, Sometimes it's that long, but today it's not going to be that long. Uh, we're going to work through Acts 4, 1 through 22. A uh, couple of things to note before I read the text. Uh, as you're tracking along through the book of Acts so far, uh, I want to point out a couple of rhythms that you're going to see. Um, the first one is uh, that there is a, uh, a sense of, of a surge and retreat within the rhythm of the pages of Acts. What do I mean by surge and retreat? You see in Jesus' ministry that he often uh, was alone and would go to lonely places and pray. Uh, that would have been a retreat. And then he would then surge out into public ministry and do crowd kind of ministry. Uh, he would travel, and that would have been a, a surge. And then he would often withdraw uh, with his disciples or to a lonely place. And it was a time for him to reconnect with God the Father. It was a time for him to pray. It was a time for him to reflect. It was a time for him to rest. And so these surges and retreats were a regular part of the rhythm of Jesus's life. I, I do that as well. Uh, once a quarter, I try to get away for a personal retreat, a day or two, uh, where uh, my, my three objectives are to rest, uh, to read, and to play. So I may play golf. I may take a, I used to have this one wheel thing. It doesn't, it's not important, but I would go on these retreat kind of things. And this is just a regular rhythm for ministry. And what we see in the book of Acts is this similar sort of rhythm where there is a, uh, an inward drawing together of the church for strengthening and for prayer and for encouragement and building up and, and structuring that is described as sort of an inner retreat for the church. And then they'll surge out into these sort of crowd ministries. Now, I say that because I want you to pick up on that rhythm as you read through Acts and be able to identify this would be more of a retreat. The church coming together, the church drawing together, the people encouraging each other and building up each other, and then a surge out into the communities where they would do outreach. So that's a, a sub-theme that I want you to see as you read through Acts. Uh, a second thing I want you to see is that um, in these first seven or eight chapters, we have temple clashes and a contrast. There's all these fights that are taking place in the temple, and I want you to understand why that's happening, because the author Luke, by the Holy Spirit, arranged these first sections in such a way that the temple and its rulers are contrasted with the apostles and the Holy Spirit. So let me just kind of help you see what that means. 
When he's talking about the old, the temple, uh, the structure itself, and those rulers who rule over it, the priestly family, the high priests, uh, and then the, the priests who also work there, and then there's a, a, a temple police, and there's a whole network, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the council. There's all of these religious figures that are involved in the governing of Israel around the temple. But when Jesus was on the cross, and he, as he breathed his last, what happened to the curtain within the temple? The Bible says it was torn, uh, an enormous curtain that separates the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was and the presence of God was dwelling uh, from the holy place. That curtain was torn in two, indicating that the presence of God was no longer located within the temple. Jesus had condemned the priesthood and the rulers, and they had condemned him, crucifying him. And so the temple itself no longer contained the presence of God. The temple was obsolete, and, and just in 70 AD, just maybe 40 years after this event that we're reading about, the entire temple was destroyed. It has, still hasn't been built back. So the rulers and their sacrifices, the priests, the rituals, the symbols, the routine, all of it just became a hollow exercise. Can you imagine doing all of those things where before the presence of God would have been located right there, and then all of a sudden, the, the presence of God is gone, and they're still going through a hollow, empty ritual. The rulers, now when they're mentioned in Acts as part of this sort of sub-theme, now all they have are power grabs and threats and murder and jailing. And this contrast with them uh, is uh, you know, directly opposite of what we see with the apostles and what the Holy Spirit, by way of Luke, is showing us in Acts that, that anytime there's this old temple, an old regime, an old guard clashing with the apostles, this is the difference. The, the um, apostles and the disciples, the new believers, up to 5,000 men at this early point, they are each one, every believing man and woman, each one of them are now filled individually with the Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells within you? Uh, if a man or woman is in Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. You are the new temple. And so all of these new temples are now walking around and they're clashing with the old temple who is trying to protect their place and their um, authority and their power. The apostles, the disciples, every new believer is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We call this doctrine the priesthood of believers, that we no longer, you don't have to, sometimes people will say, hey, will you say a prayer for me? Your prayers matter and mine don't. That's not true. The priesthood of all believers means you have just as much access to God through Jesus Christ, if you're in Christ, that I do. You don't have to go through me to have a closer relationship. Many of you probably have a closer relationship, a deeper intimacy uh, with God than I do. We're, you're not dependent on another man. This was prophesied in the Old Testament where it said, uh, no longer shall every man uh, teach another. Each one will then have the power uh, of the Spirit of God to, uh, to, to, to teach them themselves. The apostles are not only filled with the Holy Spirit, this is another contrast, but they are especially empowered by the Holy Spirit to work miracles. 
So now you see these temples, uh, people who are filled with the Holy Spirit, clashing with the old temple authorities where the presence of God is no longer there. Uh, and, and, and then this special group of apostles, 12 again, are not only filled with the Holy Spirit, but they are uniquely endowed and empowered by the Holy Spirit to work miracles. So wherever they're going, the apostles, the disciples, the new believers, as these temples filled with the Holy Spirit, they are bringing life and healing and good news of God's grace, forgiveness of sins, uh, working miracles that verify the message of the gospel. Everywhere they're going, life is erupting and exploding and forgiveness and grace and restoration and reconciliation and transformation. All of these things are happening where these new spirit-dwelled believers are going. And this is the plan of God to get the word of God throughout the world where it's no longer concentrated at the temple. I say this all the time, but when you leave here, the Holy Spirit doesn't stay here. Um, the Holy Spirit remains with you if you are in Christ. So I want you to see that because over the next few chapters, that's gonna, uh, it's going to be relevant. You're going to see these temple skirmishes with the old rulers, and you're gonna, we're going to read about it here today. So let's get to our text. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. The text says... And as they were speaking to the people, this is Peter and John, they have healed a crippled man uh, in Acts chapter 3, if you remember from just a few weeks ago. Uh, they healed this man who was over 40 years old. He was crippled. They laid him at the gate beautiful to beg. Uh, and they did this every single day. And then um, Peter and John said, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise and walk. And they reached out their hand and stretched him up and and. He uh, was completely healed and for the first time in his life began running and jumping and leaping and praising God. And that commotion drew a huge crowd of people. Enough that we know at the end of this text, uh, 5,000 men, uh, uh, the number of believers comes to 5,000 men. So this is the context of Acts 4.1. As they were speaking to the people with this um, healed man right with them, uh, Peter has preached to the crowd. And as he's preached to the crowd and told them about the gospel and told them about Jesus and, and, and all that is happening, as he was speaking, um, the priests and the captain of the temple, that's like a private security firm, that the temple police, um, the private security, the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day for it was already evening. All right? This started at 3 o'clock, right? Um, Acts 3 says that at the hour of prayer, in the afternoon. So from three to evening, I don't know if that for them was six o'clock or eight o'clock. Some of you go to bed earlier than others, right? For e you know, evening time stretches for me till 12, 1230 at night. But some of you evening is, uh, you know, seven. Um, and it's, I don't know when evening was for them, but from three until evening, Peter is preaching. And then finally, these religious authorities come greatly annoyed and they arrest them and they put them in jail until the next day. But at this point, verse 4 tells us, but many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Verse 5, on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were a part of the high priestly family. And if you don't know who all those people are, 
It's, it's not necessarily uh, pertinent to the message today, but there were all these different ruling classes and maybe kind of like political parties within Israel, but they all came together uh, to crucify Jesus. There was a unity among them to crucify Jesus, and now we see that sort of unity again to persecute the apostles. And here they're doing it. So they all came together, and they're going to have this inquisition against the apostles. Verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, that's Peter, John, and the crippled guy, the formerly crippled guy, when they had sat them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they, the religious rulers, verse 13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. It's that word that keeps coming up. Astonished. Thou matzo. It's the, it's, I'm telling you, everywhere that Jesus goes and everywhere the apostles, everywhere, that word pops up, this sense of awe and wonder and astonishment. And these religious officials, hardened in their hearts as they were, this captured their attention. and They were astonished by this. And they recognized that Peter and John had been with Jesus. We're going to make that connection here in a little while. Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, right? They're talking about it like an infection. In order to stop this from spreading... Let's warn them not to speak to anyone anymore in this name. So they called them and they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. If you're looking for a focal point in this passage, it's verses 11 through 13. So we're going to get to that in a minute. But that's uh, really a focal point that Jesus, the stone that was rejected, has become the cornerstone and that there is salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And then Peter and John are these regular people uh, and it astonished them. Uh, So we'll get to that in just a minute. 
Uh, verses 1 through 4, we see that they're, they're just greatly annoyed. They're annoyed that they're teaching. They're annoyed that the, the rulers are annoyed that the apostles, John and Peter, are proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection. Uh, they arrest them and they uh, put them in custody. Um, I know that this can be uh, annoying to some people. And I ask this question rhetorically, what annoys you the most? Don't answer, don't point. Um, I had a brother who would chew like so loudly and I had super sensitive hearing. So I, I, I wish they had, you know, those big um, headphones that uh, are noise canceling when I was a kid, but they didn't. Um, someone who talks too loud, someone who talks way more than they listen. Um, we tend to hyper-focus on things that annoy us. And, and as soon as that thing happens, we have just like a quick trigger. And, you know, we can, we can get frustrated and annoyed really easily. Uh, what annoyed the religious leaders? It was the gospel. I mean, they were really annoyed hearing about Jesus. They hated hearing about the resurrection. They hated hearing about Jesus dying as the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. All of that brought incredible annoyance to them. <clears throat> Listen, if you're annoyed by the gospel, even now, if, if, you, if you hear us talk about Jesus and the gospel and the cross and salvation, if that starts to get to a point where, oh, this again... Are we really going to talk about this again? I, I once had a guy critique and say, why do we always keep coming back to the gospel? Can we just move on? Isn't there other things to talk about? Listen, if you ever get over Jesus, something might be wrong, okay? If, if he ceases to produce in you some sort of wonder and amazement and you stop reflecting on the fact that it was your sin that caused him to be crucified and that doesn't bring you to, to just to be emotionally moved or to be uh, in that moment arrested and grateful if you move past jesus you're doing it wrong if you're annoyed by the gospel if you get irritated about jesus you should be concerned about the condition of your heart you should be concerned that sort of hard-heartedness does not lead to life and good things. Um, that's a, a metric by which you can examine yourself. Am I, do I, am I irritated by Jesus? Does this bother me when people talk to me about Jesus? The gospel, the cross, are those things annoying? Uh, verse 5 through 7. On the next day, they, they, they get together and they're going to inquire, how did you do this? What's going on? By what power did, they, did you do this? You can find that they're genuinely curious. It was a real miracle. And this guy, 40 years old, it says they laid him at the gate beautiful every day. So every single day, everybody would have passed by this guy and they would have known this guy and they would have seen this guy. They probably would have felt guilty day after day because they weren't giving him money and they weren't helping him in his condition. So for this guy to be right there with them, probably still stretching, right? I mean, if I, if I just got new legs yesterday and I can walk, like I'd be bouncing around, right? I would be doing, I would, it would be hard probably for this guy to sit down. He's evident right there in front of them and they're really curious about how did you do this? This guy was over 40, he was, um, crippled and hopeless how did he became whole how did he become whole and they want Peter and John to explain the mystery they want to know is there a new power is there a new way is there a new path to wholeness 
Listen, that sense of curiosity still haunts people today. Can I experience fulfillment? Why do I feel empty inside? How can I become completely right? How do I ease my conscience from sin and guilt? Uh, What's the answer to my problems? Is there a purpose for me? Listen, Peter gives them the answer, and the answer is Jesus. Jesus is how this person was healed. Um, Not surprising, because Jesus' three-year ministry in Israel was full of miracles like this. I mean, everywhere he went, uh, people flocked to him. Just remember uh, Matthew 4, 23 through, I think, 5, 2. It said all these people from the entire area of Israel, the crippled, the lame, the blind, all these people were flocking to Jesus because he was healing them. And so I don't know why they were surprised, but they're still annoyed that the answer is Jesus. And then Peter, uh, you know, in a very bold way, look at verses 8 through 12. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to, you, to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I don't know if this is a summary. I don't know if this is uh, Peter's exact words, but it's pretty short and pretty to the point, and, and I imagine it was pretty inflammatory. Um, but he did not compromise. He did not um, mix his words. He didn't hedge them. He wasn't trying to be nice. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to offend them. But he was just spouting truth, saying, Jesus is why. It's neat to know, it's good to know, that Peter and John didn't take credit. They didn't pretend to possess some sort of special knowledge or technique. Well, if you touch the guy in a particular way, you know, he'll be healed. They didn't point to diet or fasting or any special incantation or formulas. They simply told the truth that Jesus is the reason why this crippled man before you can now walk. Jesus is why. And then he says that Jesus is the way. The religious leaders thought that they had gotten rid of Jesus. They did crucify him maybe a year or so earlier. We don't know what the exact timeline is, but this might have been within a year or so of Jesus' death and crucifixion. Jesus was still present on their mind. They had him crucified. And that was a pretty thorough way to get rid of your enemies. But in this case, it wasn't. Jesus was um, resurrected. He didn't stay in the tomb for more than three days. He was in the tomb, and on the third day, he rose to life. And for the next 40 days, Jesus appeared up to 500 people at one time. Paul tells us in Corinthians that that Jesus was making appearances for this 40-day period, and then he ascended into heaven. And then 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. But they're telling them and reminding them, you crucified Jesus and you rejected Him. He's not going to go away. For the second time in Acts, and we're only in chapter 4, but for the second time in the temple area, the apostles have declared that Jesus is alive, well, raised from the dead, and at the right hand of God the Father, ruling from on high. 
He said, you crucified him and you rejected him. Listen, we should be able to identify with those two words probably more than we do. You crucified him, you rejected him. We can identify with this in some ways because people reject Jesus all the time. Uh, people take Jesus' name in vain. I was at a football game the other day, and, and you just hear it. You hear people, uh, when they're angry, take the name of Jesus or take the name of God and combine it with a curse word. And that's a regular occurrence. Even among people who have some sort of respect for Jesus, often reject him by treating him like a genie in a lamp. If I just come to Jesus, uh, he'll give me the things I need or the things I want. Or maybe kind of a good luck charm. But we were talking about this. I don't know who I was talking about this with. Somebody in the room maybe. Why do people wear crosses as jewelry? You know, it's, a, it's almost like a good luck charm in some ways, even if they don't really believe in Jesus. Um, people, it's a form of rejection if not outright rejecting him. I remember as a seventh grader uh, at a birthday party, um, we were playing a capture the flag or something, and, and we were in the corner of this dark part of the field, and these three guys were having a conversation about Jesus, and they just asked me if I believed, and I said, no, I don't believe in Jesus, you're crazy. And I didn't even know anything about Jesus. I just knew that I, I thought they were crazy for believing in Jesus. It was an outright verbal rejection of Jesus. Our sin, your sin, my sin, all the sins of the world were placed on Jesus at the cross. So in, in, in a real way, we bear responsibility for Jesus' crucifixion. If I was the only sinner in the world and Jesus still went to the cross, it would be apparent that my sin caused Him to go. But the truth is that all of us, born in sin, contributed to Jesus' need to go to the cross. And so we can look at Peter and say, yeah, tell him, you crucified him, you rejected him. But, but outside of Christ, we have crucified him and we have rejected him. And Peter goes on to identify him as the cornerstone. What's a cornerstone? I had to look this up. The cornerstone is a foundation stone, and it's the first stone set in the construction of a masonry foundation. And all the other stones are set in reference to that stone, thus determining the position of the entire structure. Right, how many masons do we have in the room? Right. Andy, have you set a cornerstone before? Yeah, it's that Jesus is described as the cornerstone and he's the stone that the builders rejected. The religious officials were supposed to be bringing life and, and they would have been the first ones to recognize who Jesus was when John the Baptist said, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But they rejected Jesus as Messiah, as the Son of God, and had him crucified. Therefore, Jesus is building a new foundation, a new building called the church. And Peter explains, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 13 is interesting. When they saw, you, you probably highlighted this in your Bible. Uh, it's, it's a very popular verse for people. Um, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. We identify with this simple beauty of this one verse because I feel like all of us in some way who are in Christ 
have a sense that why did he choose me? Like, why did he save me? You know, I, what, there's nothing inherently unique or special. I didn't, I, I didn't, you know, just personal example. I had an older brother who got like a 35 on the ACT, very smart. Older sister who got like a 33. They were both very smart. And so I strolled into the ACT as though I had it all together. I, I just rocked like a 19. <laughs> Which, if you, know, if you don't know, it's not a very great. There's really nothing. I, I did not have the genes or whatever. Um, there, there was nothing uniquely. God didn't look down and say, I got to save Gibson because he's going to be a valuable asset to the team. Listen, I, I grew up um, really poor. Uh, we were kind of a trashy family. Um, there was like a two-year period where the city and the small town that we lived in had to come and tell us to clean up the garbage from our yard. It was just a, it was an unhealthy, bad environment. And, and there was nothing unique that God said, I've got to save this person because of the gifts and the abilities and the specialness about this person. It doesn't mean that God didn't love me. Love is different than, than him choosing somebody because of your natural gifts and abilities. And you might still have that perception that God saved you because of how wonderful you are. If you're in Christ for any length of time, you start to realize, you know, Paul's progression was I'm the least of the apostles. And then he moved to I'm the least uh, of, the, of the saints. And then toward the end of his writing life, he said, I am the worst sinner of all time. Right, the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you realize how, how much you don't have it all together. Peter and John were fishermen. Not necessarily extraordinary. You know, in the Jewish life, they would have been chosen as a, uh, in a, um, a time. They would have gone to the temple. They would have been, uh, the rabbis would have, um, almost like a college entrance exam, they would have been chosen to be a learner or a student. And if you weren't chosen at a young age, then you were sent out into an occupation. So Peter and John, were, they weren't smart enough to be rabbinical students. They were not special. That sheds light on Jesus when he was in the temple. And, and he amazed those who heard his teaching as a 12-year-old with his understanding and yet went into a trade of carpentry instead. Peter and John, not special, not extraordinary. And we can identify with this if we're in Christ. The mystery and the beauty of the gospel is that God takes ordinary and makes it extraordinary. There is no one who on their own merits, God saves because of their inherent ability and, and, and qualities. I know that may shatter some of your um, egos. I'm sorry. But it's one of the most beautiful features of the gospel is that God chooses ordinary and humble to shame the wise and arrogant. He reaches down to the lowest pits of humanity and redeems the lowly of heart. It says a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, a bruised reed he will not cast out. Do you know what that means? A candle that's barely flickering, has very little left, he will not just snuff it out and cast it out. He will fan it back into flame. This is the beauty of God is that he exalts the humble while humbling the arrogant and proud of heart. God will use the available and the pure and the humble in heart long before he chooses the arrogant and prideful in heart. I won't read it. Jot in your notes, 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 31. You can read it later. Just an explanation of how God uses the weak and chooses the foolish in the world to shame the wise. 1 Corinthians 1, 20 through 31. I'm not going to read it. Just write it down. Read it later. 
Verse 14, but seeing the man who was healed, uh, back to Acts chapter 4, verse 14, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Uh, Verse 15, when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with each other, saying, what are are we going to do about these guys? Um, And so they bring them back in, and they say, don't speak, don't teach, don't talk anymore about Jesus. And Peter and John said, we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. And then they further threatened them, and they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Listen, this is going to accumulate, if that's the right word. This is going to eventually wind up in Stephen being killed. It's going to end up in uh, Acts 9 with Saul ravaging the church. Um, It's going to wind up, here in a little while, a couple chapters, they're going to go to prison. Uh, James is going to be killed. The bro- no, spoiler alert, James, uh, the apostle, is going to be killed. This fight amps up in the coming chapters. Today, they threaten them, they command them, they warn them, they punishment them, uh, they imprison them. They, this is all the language of the religious rulers of what they can do. It's a, they're, they're in the dying way and, uh, and, and so now all they can do is ruthlessly protect their declining authority and power. Peter and James, John's, I'm sorry, Peter and John's response, we can't help it. You decide. We can't stop talking about Jesus. When I got converted, um, I, after about a month and a half, uh, I was riding with a guy named Jamie in his little Suzuki Samurai. And uh, after school one day, we're driving down the street, um, He's giving me a ride somewhere, and I say, hey, I know this sounds weird, but something um, wild happened to me a couple months ago, and I don't know how to explain it. I had no language for this. I wasn't in church. I just said, uh, one night, I prayed and said, God, if you're real, I need you to help me because I can't live like this and go through with the things I'm doing. And the next night, a guy came to my door, and he told me about Jesus, and I prayed this prayer and asked Jesus to save me and to forgive me, and, and Jamie cut me off, and he said, don't ever talk about that again. And he used a lot of uh, colorful language. But, but I didn't care. I, I was so changed, I could not stop talking about it. And I was trying to make sense of it until finally I told a friend of mine named Kristen, and she just, she just started crying. because she, she said, every day this year in English class, she sat diagonally behind me, I prayed for this. I prayed for you to be saved. I prayed for you to hear the gospel. I prayed for you to respond. Um, but I could not help talking about Jesus. In that first 18 months as a believer, 17 friends and family members, I personally got to lead to faith in Christ uh, before I left for college. The, the message of Jesus was on my lips, right? Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9, if I say I will not mention him, if I say I won't speak anymore in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in. I cannot, right? The genuinely saved, those who fully understand the consequences, the implications of the gospel, they can't stop talking about it. Can't stop talking about the good news of the gospel of Jesus. Many of you are like that. Many of you look for an opportunity to talk about Jesus at any chance you get. Let's conclude this way. Uh, Just by way of reminder, um, Peter highlights that Jesus is the way of salvation. Jesus is the way of salvation. If you imagined, um, you know, there used to be a door right here. Uh, before we, we changed, I think the door was like right here. But if you imagine that that was the, um, that this wall 
was you couldn't get through this wall um, because all the doors were closed uh, and there was only one way. Jesus would be the, the doorway, the only way to get from one room to the other. If salvation uh, were a, 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 you know, a wall and heaven were uh, entrance and forgiveness of sins and a relationship with God, there aren't multiple doors. Now, despite what the world says, it would tell you that there are, this is one God and every religion is a different avenue to Him. All roads lead to God or all paths lead to Him. Listen, the, Jesus, the reason why He's so hated and people don't like Christians at all, at all is the exclusivity of salvation in Jesus' name. Jesus said it Himself, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but through Me. Peter says it perfectly in this passage, um, verse 12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It, it, it's as though we, we have this thought that we can... Let's say we, there's a beautiful house somewhere in Montgomery, the biggest house in Montgomery County. And everybody knows about this house, and everybody wants to go to this house. It's as though we walk up to the door and we say, I, I, I'm going to come and live inside your house. And the person would say, what? no, you can't come into my house. You're, I don't know you. You're not a part of my family. They would have the right to say no. And in the same way, we feel like God's just going to give everybody heaven because they want to get into his house. So he ordains the way and says, it's only if you cherish my son, Jesus Christ, and you believe in him, that's the entrance into my eternal presence and home. We called it the wicket gate in Pilgrim's Progress. There is no other way in which we can be saved, not by works, not through being moral, not by being good enough. It's not because your parents went to church or your grandparents went to church or your great-grandparents. It's not a heritage. It's not through Mary. It's not through the church. It's not through an organization or a guru. You don't have to go on a pilgrimage. Anyone can be saved by going directly to Jesus. He is the way of salvation. That's application number one. Application number two, the last one, is that we see the beauty of transformation in this passage. Right? Peter and John, regular people, ordinary, uneducated, unschooled, and, and they took note that they had been with Jesus. This is the beauty of sanctification, that God transforms people. He changes people's lives. Peter and John were ordinary, unschooled people, and Jesus transformed them. In Matthew 4.19, this is our definition for a disciple. Matthew 4.19 says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We see three parts there. Follow me, I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, Jesus called Peter and John, come follow me. And, and so that was a devotion to Jesus. I will make you, speaks of his transformative power. Oftentimes I'll find people, and people I even witness to, friends I witness to in my hometown. One guy said, I already did all that. I already prayed and asked Jesus to forgive me. But he was the same guy that when I was, you know, walking as a non-Christian that was with me at all the parties and all the stuff, there was zero difference in this person's life. If I told you this morning that on my way here, I was driving down 309 and an 18-wheeler hit my car, spun me out and threw me out of the car and I ended up on the side of the road and I limped over uh, here and just in time for me to stand up and preach today. You wouldn't believe me, 
Because you can't have an encounter with a Mack truck and look like the way I look, right? You can't have an encounter with a diesel truck thrown from your car and, and look the way I look. I don't know how people can say, I've had this encounter with Jesus and it's life-changing and their life has not changed at all. Jesus transforms people. The process of sanctification is the process by which the Holy Spirit makes you more like Jesus, giving you patience when before you only had frustration and a short fuse, giving you uh, the grace to forgive somebody when they wrong you over and over and over again, helping you um, with new desires, changing your appetite so the things that you once loved, you no longer love any longer. Sounds redundant empowering you, changing your habits, changing your heart, changing your appetites. A believer in Jesus should progressively look more and more like Jesus. That's the power of the transformation. Father, we thank you for our time together today. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through you. And we thank you that you make us new and different We pray, Lord, that you would uh, save those who here um, have not been saved. Your word tells us in Romans 10 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We pray that they would go directly to you, Jesus, and that they might believe in you, repenting of their sins and placing their faith in you. And we pray that by the power of the gospel, they would be different. That people would look at them and they would say, even though they're um, uneducated and ordinary I can see that they've been with Jesus by the way they are transformed. We pray that you would help us to apply today's message, not just to file it away as interesting information somewhere, but help us to put it into practice. In Jesus' name, amen.